As we continue through this series on becoming his church, you know, we've looked at a lot of things and I hope that part of what's happening in between Sundays is you're actually thinking about this. You're actually thinking about not just where we are as a church, but certainly thinking about that, but also thinking about yourself. You know, what, what needs to take place in your life right now so that you might become someone who is more contributing, more participating, more involved in helping this church be the church that God wants it to be. And it doesn't mean necessarily starting something new. It could. There are obviously things that can be done. Sometimes it's just an attitude shift. Sometimes it is trying to overcome something that's kind of affected you in such a way. Maybe it was a previous church you were at where you experienced some a church trauma or church hurt. And, or maybe it's just... You, you know, what you've been doing and going through in your own life. Whatever it is, think about what, what we're saying and not just let them be words that are said and good ideas. But how, what do they look like? And what are they going to look like at Wiley Baptist Church in the coming weeks and months and years? In Acts chapter 19 verses 11 through 20, we're going to just start by parachuting into the middle of this chapter and then I'll give you some context. So if you haven't been playing along with the home version of our game, um, I'll catch you up in a minute, okay? 1911 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So Paul has been at Ephesus. Remember, he had visited, said, I'm going to come back, God willing. God willed it. He came back. And then what happens is this is the beginning of the most successful of all the churches that Paul plants. All the churches that he starts, the most successful. He stays there. He stays there for um, at least three years, maybe longer. And 
this, the success is spreading. You know, I've titled this mini-series, three parts in the bigger series, is when God gets hold of a city. And, and last week, you know, we talked about, you know, what happens to, you know, get that ready to happen. And one of them was that, was that God's people, his church, that they would embrace the full gospel, not these kind of partial gospels that we talked about last week that, that, that seems really attractive and it, you can use those partial gospels to, to get big numbers and crowds, but God's not really gonna get hold of a city. He's not really gonna work in that city through a partial gospel because really a partial gospel is in some sense no gospel. But Paul, he helped, he helped these guys get it right. He, he filled in the gaps, he, which were huge. And, and as soon as they heard, as soon as they understood, the Bible tells us they believed. And then things just kept taking off from there to the point that, that when just a relatively short amount of time throughout all of Asia Minor, everyone had heard the gospel. Started with just Paul and these 12 men in Ephesus. Even when they faced opposition, it was okay. They just kept going. And we didn't talk about this much last week, but let me just help you, especially if you don't come on Wednesday nights, to understand that, that of all the places Paul could have gone, of all the places that God could have led him to start this church that would just get it right, explode, and spread the gospel in, across almost an entire continent, Ephesus was not the logical choice. Ephesus was a, a city that was known for certain things. It was a powerful city. It, it had the... It had the uh, temple to the goddess Artemis there. And it didn't matter whether people actually believed in Artemis or not. There obviously were some people that did, but it really didn't matter if people did or not because what had happened is that worship of the goddess Artemis had become part of their culture. It had been woven in, and we're gonna learn more about this next week, to their economy. And so it wasn't just the fact that, okay, there's this, this giant idol that's being worshiped, this goddess that's being worshiped. It wasn't just the fact of all of the festivals and things that went around the worship of Artemis. It was that this was part of their culture and especially this was part of their economy. You know, we we're talking about on Wednesday night, but, but you know, when we talk about what some people call the Ninth Island, if you took gambling out of Vegas, what would you have? Small town in the desert. Not much else. Gambling is such, the casinos, they're such a part of the culture that if you suddenly removed it, they're such a part of the economy that if you suddenly removed it, it would destroy the economy. It's part of what's going on here. So there's not just religious reasons people might have to oppose Christianity. 
there was others here at Ephesus. Ephesus was also known as like kind of the center for magic. And not magic like, like whenever you think of magic, you always probably think of the guy pulling the rabbit out of the hat or you know, cutting someone in half, things like that. Um, some of you younger people, it might be the street magic guys you see doing the card tricks and levitating and making the Statue of Liberty disappear. Um, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking again about people that, that, that had so like, um, you know, taken these beliefs that it, it wasn't just, again, part of the economy, it wasn't just part of their culture, it was really their worldview. It's to use a term they wouldn't have known, it was like in their DNA. And that's where God sends Paul. That's where God sends Paul. He doesn't send him to the, the city that is most likely to respond. He sends him right into one of the most difficult cities. And what we have here is, we actually have had three stories in succession. And it's always hard to tell because, you know, our modern Bibles have chapters and verses and they have little subheads. And sometimes those are really helpful and useful. Sometimes they're a little... Not confusing, but I think they, help, they, they make us miss points that are there. And so the three stories that are all kind of connected to Ephesus, they go back to Apollos. And if you remember, when we talked about Apollos, Apollos knew the truth, but he was just missing something. And, and I'm not sure what he was missing. The text seems to be that he wasn't missing what was needed to be a Christian, but he was missing something about, because he had all these skills, and he was missing something about when he was doing what Paul was doing and engaging in um, discussion and debate with other people and trying to present the gospel, something was missing. And you know, my suspicion is it might have been kind of his spirit and his attitude that he, he was bringing the message of Jesus, but he was presenting it in a way that didn't really reflect the love of Jesus. And then we had the 12 last week in Ephesus. And the 12, of the 12, you had, these guys didn't know much at all. They only knew about repentance. And then the full gospel is explained to them. The group we're going to see this time in the third story, it's these sons of Sceva. And if you want to know more about them, again, come Wednesday night or listen to the recordings and the sons knew something. They had some concept of the truth. They knew more than the 12 knew before Paul showed up. They probably didn't know as much as Apollos. But they seemed to be missing some things. And the text kind of helps us. Luke tells the story in such a way that we can, we can learn more about them. If you go back to... Um, their, their statement in verse 13 when they're kind of confronting this uh, man who has uh, evil spirits and, and, and they were act, apparently doing it, you know, trying to do it in different situations. And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What does that tell us? It tells us right off the bat 
that they didn't really know Jesus. They didn't know Jesus other than he was a name that was associated with Paul. And if we back up a little bit, what had been happening? God was doing miracles. He's in a city that is focused on magic, superstition, etc. He's going to show more miracles there. These miracles are happening. And so much so that, that as would ex- be expected by people, they see Paul heal some, somebody. They don't understand it's God doing it. Luke's really clear. He says God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, but they don't understand it. And then they do what anybody else does. They, they start to think, you know, how is Paul able to do this? How is Paul able to do this? What's the secret to his power? And so some of them, they, they thought like, if I can get something, and this apron is probably not so much an apron, it's just maybe a waist towel that they would have had around their waist to, if they're working and wipe their hands. You know, the handkerchief is not something they put out of their pocket to blow their nose on. It's probably more like a bandana kind of thing or something like that, um, multi-use. But they thought like, if this would just touch his skin, he is so powerful. If this would just touch his skin, we, 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 can, we can heal. Again, not unexpected. And for whatever reason, in this moment in time, God allows that to happen. Unfortunately, some people begin to, you know, have tried to teach that this is like normative. You know, and I tell people, after I go on a 10-mile run, I can squeeze my sweat out and you guys can try to use it to heal yourselves all you want. It ain't gonna work. It's just gonna make you smell bad. But these people are like, you know, they're seeing it and this is where they're connecting because remember, the purpose of miracles was simply to get people's attention so that they could hear the gospel. Well, the sons of Sceva... They, they see this, and they want to kind of harness this power, and they're like, okay, we're not thinking it's about handkerchiefs and aprons. We think it's in the magic formula that they say. And this was very common in Ephesus. They have made archaeological finds where they've, they've seen inscriptions that have these magical formulas, and some of them included the names of Jesus and you know names you would be familiar with from even the Hebrew scriptures. And so they're saying this, but what we can tell right off the bat is that they don't know Jesus themselves. They have no relationship with Jesus. And it seems like they only knew something about Paul. And so now they're thinking like, Hey, we can do, we recognize, we see the sign, we see the miracle, we recognize it's gotten our attention, but for whatever reason, they didn't want to hear the gospel. Because had they heard the gospel, had they understood the gospel, they never would have done what they did. And whenever I look back, and as soon as I start getting my judgy hat on, 
What a bunch of knuckleheads. I start to think, am, am I that way too? Are we that way too, where we just want to see the signs, but we don't want to hear the word? There's some people like, they just want to sing the songs in worship, but they don't want to hear the word. There's people that, you know, want to go to the, the you know, the growth groups that we call them. And I'm not saying we have people here that do this. I'm just saying I know people who go to groups like that and they want the fellowship, but they don't want the word. Some people treat worship like it's the warm-up act for the main event, the sermon. It's not the best way to think about it. But other people think the sermon is the price you got to pay to worship. That's not good either. If the worship got your attention because you sensed in a very real way that you were in the presence of God, it's because God is getting your attention. He wants you to hear the word. Sons didn't do that. Sons of Sceva. And they missed it. And we can see that they have a different version of the same problem that Apollos had. And what they're thinking is, I want this Jesus' power, but I don't want Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to take the Jesus' power and I'm going to use it as someone who doesn't know Jesus. And yeah, I'm going to kind of use it for good because I'm going after evil spirits. And I'm going after evil spirits because I'm going to show how much more powerful I am than them. These are not people, these sons are not people that understood that Jesus silently suffered and died on the cross. That Jesus had died on the cross partly to break this attitude in ourselves that says it is about who is the most powerful. It is about might against might, strength against strength. Whether it's at the level of in your household between husband and wife or whether it's between nations, it's not about power. And as long as it's about power, it will always end the same way. These guys didn't understand it and they're, they're in a sense trying to do a good thing but because they don't know Jesus, they have no idea about why they're even doing what they're doing. There's something even kind of worse than this. And you can kind of, in a way, forgive these sons of Sceva because they don't know Jesus. We can't be forgiven for this. But what they thought was that, think about what this means. By invoking the name of Jesus, they could harness his power. In other words, they thought, if I say certain words, do certain things, I can control God. 
anytime you start hearing, I don't care who it is, I don't care what denomination, I don't even care if they're even, you know, affiliated with any organized denomination, you hear anybody telling you a gospel that says, if you say certain words, God has to do certain things, run. That is not the gospel. Sadly, it's an attractive gospel. Because what all human beings have had in common throughout all of history, and we see it show up in our philosophies and our religions, and it's, it's that we live in this world that there seems to be patterns to it, and then there seems to be irregularities to the patterns. There's seasons that come and go, there's rains that come and go, and then there's irregularities, unprecedented cold, unprecedented floods. You know what's happening in Florida with the hurricane? Just these things happen. And so what do we want? Why do we develop religions? Because we want control. We want to believe not only is God in control, but somehow I am too. And this is one of the dangers that we have because we'll hear about Christianity, we'll read scripture, we'll accept the truth to an extent, but we wanna fit it into our lives. We wanna fit it into our lives where we still hold on to some bit of control. If I pray a certain way, if I believe a certain way, God has to do this. It's not the gospel. And that's what these guys were doing. They, were, they, they thought they could control God. They thought they could reduce God to a formula or to a practice. And the reason they thought they could do that is because they didn't understand what it meant to have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, what if when you got married, someone gave you a secret book, and that secret book was certain phrases you could say to get your spouse to do whatever you wanted them to do? If you didn't immediately burn the book, why are you marrying this person? And yet we do that to God. God, love you. God, you're sovereign. God, you're Lord. God, I believe your word. It's true. Now, what are those magic words I can use to control you? It's dangerous. And it's out there. And sadly, sometimes for me, it sometimes wants to creep up inside of me too. Understand this. I've told you before, Christianity is the only religion, only philosophy, only faith, any expression that we have that admits up front it is impossible to do what we need to do to be saved, to be righteous without Jesus Christ. It's impossible, you cannot do it on your own. 
Christianity admits it up front. The other thing that makes Christianity different is that Christianity says when you come to true faith in Jesus Christ, it's not about gaining control over God. It's not about getting control over Jesus. It's about surrender. True Christianity is giving up control. Not thinking like, now I can get control. It doesn't mean my life becomes chaotic and random, no. I've given up control, I've surrendered to the one true God of the universe who loves me, who has the ultimate good in his will, not just for the universe, but also for me. Who else would you surrender to? And why would you question that guy? And what the sons of Sceva didn't understand, and I think it's something sometimes in modern Christianity we misunderstand, and it gets back to that idea of trying to modify Christianity, is that if we're going to talk about the kingdom, we need to understand that the nature of the kingdom is the nature of the king. The nature of the king is the nature of the kingdom. It's why we want to know who Jesus is. It's why we want to know what his heart is. It's why we want to know what he's teaching us. We want to know his character because it tells us who we are supposed to be as his people. And if Jesus isn't marked by being this violent, tough warrior that goes out and destroys and trash talks and, and you know, does everything to his enemy. Why do we even think that's acceptable for us to do? So many people get excited about the second coming because they go, oh yeah, we're gonna be in this army. You know what the equivalent to us, which we think is the ultimate weapon, is the nuclear weapon. Do you know what that ultimate weapon is to Jesus? Do you know what really, it's not just the main weapon, it's often the only weapon? Love. You getting all charged up, getting on your battle, you know, putting on your armor, let's go. And Jesus goes, all right, guys, love. There's your enemy. They hate you. They're ready to attack. Love. Totally different. But we've modified Christianity where we, we, we think that when we sing songs like some of the older songs like Onward Christian Soldier that we don't understand it's a, it's a metaphor. And that if you're going to say we're going to go out in battle, we're going out to love. We're not going out to kill. They didn't understand it. You have these three stories. 
in, in sequence, all showing different deficiencies. But ultimately, for these sons of Sceva, they're doing something that the other two weren't. Apollos wasn't doing this, and the twelve weren't doing this. The twelve believed what they believed because that's all they knew. And the evidence of it is that when they were told truth, they embraced it. Apollos wasn't doing what he was doing because, again, he didn't know. But these guys are different. These guys are different. We don't see them asking for truth, hearing truth, repenting. We don't see any of that happening. What they're trying to do is they're trying to, to take the truth and not just live it out even though they have gaps like Apollos in the 12, but to try to modify it, to try to make it fit into what they're doing, add it as another trick that they can use. Well, when we look at this text, there's three, I think, kind of big points that we get here. The first one is at the beginning when God is doing this kind of goofy miracle in a way. You know, piece of cloth touches someone, they're healed. It's kind of goofy in a way. Paul doesn't even seem to be aware of it at some points. Then really, Luke doesn't really give us any indication. He probably hears about it. Probably at first he's like, what are all these weird people doing touching me with their aprons or their handkerchiefs? But I think Luke is telling us something that's really important, and that is that with God, you know, when God's at work, anything is possible. When God's at work, anything is possible. The reason the sons of Sceva can't do what they're doing, it's not because God can't do it. The reason we might fail at doing the things that we believe God is leading us to do it is not because God can't do it. When God's at work, anything's possible. You see, <clears throat> the other part of what happens in this story is, is we kind of like that. And then what we want to then see is we want to see God do the spectacular. We become, again, in love with the sign and not with the word. But let me tell you, there, there are miracles. This room is filled with miracles. This room should be a miracle. And it happens every day. And for some reason, we're not nearly as impressed as if someone came up here and, you know, they were blind and we prayed for them and then they suddenly could see. We would go, oh, wow, awesome. Immediately text, Instagram, whatever. Those of you who don't know what that is, you would just go call on the phone and tell your friends what you saw. It was amazing. Amazing. But I just told you this room is full of miracles that we, for some reason, do not think are as, as amazing. And I want to try to tell you this morning, they are not only as amazing, they are more amazing. The great miracles that we see every day if we're in Christ Jesus. 
is when we have our hearts that are dead, enslaved to sin. We cannot save ourselves. And through faith in Jesus Christ, he makes us new. He transforms us. He gives us the Holy Spirit. These are not code words for, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to follow the Jesus code. No, it's not code words. It's a miracle. When I say Christianity, Christianity admits it is impossible without Christ, if it is possible with Christ, then it's only because something miraculous has happened. I could say it this way. It is not natural within our natures to be righteous, no matter how hard we try. Therefore, if we become righteous, it has to be supernatural. But for some reason, we don't get as excited about that miracle. Heal someone who's deaf. Heal someone who's blind. Help someone who's lame to walk again. We get so stoked, we can't help but tell other people. You know what I saw at church today? Miracles. Do we believe that's a miracle? Or are you still thinking your salvation is really based on you? If you realize today you are more like Christ today, and the only reason you are more like Christ today is because of what Christ did in your life when you came to, to, to faith in Jesus Christ. If, if you realize that, there's no way you could have gotten to where you are in Christ right now. That's a miracle. And we miss it. It's all around us. The other miracle is the one I've talked about before, but, but it's when God takes a bunch of people like us who have no earthly business being together and he unites us as a family. He unites our hearts. It's a miracle. And I'm not just talking about some of the people in our church, and I'm not going to try to look at anybody or mention names that, you know, you know are so hard to love that loving them, you know, is a miracle. Yeah, yeah, that's a miracle. You know, anybody can love them. That's a miracle. No, I'm not talking. No, there's nobody in our church that way, maybe. But I am saying that when we love each other, when we have true community, not just with the people who share my interest, you know, Eric and I, you know, especially during COVID, you know, we had that, you know, running together. You know, we went running every Wednesday. It's great. It's awesome. We talked a lot during that time, got to know each other better. It's great. It's awesome. But I don't want to just have community with cool, bald guys who run. <laughs> I want to have community with everyone here. And some people is harder than others. You know, but that's the miracle. The miracle is if we have nothing in common 
And yet God unites our hearts and I know I'm in love with you and you're in love with me even though we have nothing in common. It's a miracle. And that's the action. The action we need to do is we need to, we need to live this miracle. Live out the miracle of the unity of the church here. Don't just take it as, oh, that's great words, that's a good motto, let's put it in the you know, Constitution, no. Instead of making excuses for being apart, we need to look for ways to be together. Those of you who've kind of, you know, you, and by the way, I love you all, you've been coming to church and you, you're in every way a member, be a member. Just jump in. Take that next step. Those of you who've become members and, and you're, You've, you know, you've been associated at a certain level. Go, go one more. And I'm not talking about, you know, going on our committees and all this other stuff. Fine, you go on a certain committees, that's great. I'm talking about move close together in developing relationships. If you're new to this, and I don't mean church, I just mean making friends. Okay, start with people who are kind of like you. Kind of build up your tolerance, right? <laughs> Help God to teach you. And then start to think about people that are not even your age. Don't have your same education level. Come from different parts of the island or not even from this island at all. Build community. It's a miracle. Yes, it seems impossible. Yes, it seems hard. Yes, it will be awkward. That means if you know that going in, that when it happens, it's a miracle. Because it's not something you would do on your own. The nature of this church, the nature of the community, the miracle if, is that, as we talked about, if you're going to be the nature if we're going to be the kingdom, if we're going to be the church, we need to have the nature of the king. Love, humility, grace, forgiveness, even of enemies. You see, when we are made new, when we are empowered to love as only God loves in a way that we could not before, I would, I would propose that that's harder than healing physical wounds. See, you can heal somebody against their will. You can't make somebody love against their will. It's, a, it's the greatest miracle because all of us can experience it. It's not based on knowledge, not based on, on, on abilities, anything. It's, a, it's all of you, and of all ages. All can know, all can experience. Transformational love has immediate, immediate effects, and as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, it has eternal effects. One thing everybody Jesus healed has in common 
What they all have in common is that they all eventually died. Physical healing is temporary. The healing of our hearts, the renewing of our lives, the transformation where we can love is eternal. You know, one of the ways we, we're trying to facilitate this, and by all, don't ever think this is just the only way or the substitute, is with our growth groups. And we've been doing it, what, John, about a year now? And we're looking for, let's, let's grow, let's build. The one that's there is, has been great, but let's grow and let's build. And maybe you have all the reasons not to. Start to think about the reasons to do it. As John mentioned in a business meeting, growth groups don't happen, have to happen in homes. They can happen at McDonald's. They can happen at the mall. They can happen even in this building. They can be at the park. All it takes is brothers and sisters in Christ that see the value in being together and fellowshipping together and praying together and going through God's word together. All it, all it takes is at least one person who's going to step up and say, all right, I don't have a house, but I can lead it. Or I'm not the only person in my house. I can lead it. Or I got a house. I got a place. I got time, but I can't lead. Can we find a leader? It's not hard. By the way, if you're if this is the action point you know you want to take the next steps on, John would love to hear from you later, not right now. Let me go through the last two points here. The second thing we see with the sons of Sceva, they want to do a good thing in a way. They want to cast out this evil spirit. But what this shows us is that even though with God anything is possible, without God anything can fail. Even biblical things, even good things. If we try to do anything as a church without God, just know it can fail. But here's the good news, and we're going to see this later. that God can use our failures. We shouldn't seek to fail, but God can use our failures. And if we know that God can use our failures and we're seeking after God's will and we're trying to do everything according to his word and out of love for him and love for each other and love for the world he's placed us in, that if that's what we're doing, we should be able to minister with confidence, not carelessness, but with confidence. Because one thing we see again and again in the word is that God wants to use his people. But what we need to do is make sure we get over ourselves and understand that his, his will, his plans are not dependent on our failure or success. That's both humbling and encouraging. 
Now, some of you might be going, well, you know, if, if my uh, failure and success doesn't have anything to do with his plan, then um, what's the point? Might as well do nothing. That's a question from pride. That's not a question from the heart of God. The question from pride is, what, what's my value? What am I contributing? What am I doing, God, for you? The question from the heart of God is, what would you have me do? Where will you lead me? Let's go. And I don't know what the next things are for, for all of us or each of us, but I can tell you this, that what you can do is with confidence do what you already know. Don't be afraid if you're going out and sharing the gospel. Don't be afraid if you're going out and demonstrating the love of Christ to people in need and worried that you might do it wrong. The sons of Sceva did it wrong in every possible way they could do it wrong, but then what happened is when, when people found out about it, what had happened when the evil spirit confronted them, it says this became known to all the residents of Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I don't know why it happened this way. And again, I'm not telling you go do dumb things to prove how awesome God is. No, that's not a good plan. But with confidence, try to do what is right. Follow God's will, trusting that even if you get it wrong, he can still use it for his glory. And we're going to come back to this next week. Come back to this next week that the effect that this has. These, these believers who had become Christians, but, but they had thought, you know, I could become Christians and keep, still keep kind of this this other part of the Ephesian culture about the magic and all these other things, you know, how can I make them work? They realize you cannot make them work. They don't belong together. And so it was moved out of their lives. They stopped asking the wrong question. The wrong question that we ask, and by the way, if you're new in your faith, it's okay to ask. At some point you will realize it's not what you need to ask. But the question that some of us ask is, how much can I keep of my old life once I become a Christian? How much can I keep doing from my old life and still be a Christian? I think the better question is, Jesus, this is all of me. Give me back what can be used to bring you glory and to serve you. I want nothing else, just that. If you have been someone who's tried to do things for God and, and experienced failure, or maybe you just keep sinning Keep going back to the same sin that you've repented over, asked for forgiveness for. The action point is simply this, repent. Repent for past sins. Repent for present sins. 
but don't be crippled by them. And don't think that God has somehow been thwarted. No. With confidence, get back up. Keep looking for his will. Keep learning. Keep growing. Keep doing it.